open your Bibles tonight with me, please, to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 1. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 1. It is a joy to be back again tonight looking out over the audience. We have several uh, who are here tonight who were not able to be with us this morning, but even more so, we have several visitors with us tonight, and we certainly want to let you know how much we appreciate your joining us this evening. It's uh, a blessing always, of course, to meet new people, and uh, we appreciate it when people are driving through, passing through, and they stop in and they visit with us. It's very encouraging. Appreciate you very much. Tonight we're going to begin a study on the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll be looking at the first 11 verses of this. This is kind of an introduction to the book anyway, so it kind of fits and works out pretty well. Um, the words of the preacher, the words of the preacher will begin in verse 1 here in just a moment. But, uh, you know, when you look at this book, uh, you may read through it, and I, I know people who have read through the book and have just come to completely erroneous conclusions about a variety of different things. Uh, some have come to the conclusion that, you know, when you're dead, you don't know anything that's going on, period, anywhere at all. You're completely unconscious. You soul sleep. There's some people who read this book and come away with that conclusion. Well, why? Why is that? Well, they fail to keep the book in its context or consider the entire context of the book and the theme of the book. So as we go through this study, we're going to try to keep it in context. We're going to try to remember the theme the verse, first verse says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man under, from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after there's really a lot here in these first 11 verses, but this is kind of setting the stage for what this book is all about. First of all, the term Ecclesiastes comes from the Septuagint translation of the book, uh, the Greek translation of the book. Ecclesiastes is kind of akin to ecclesia. Does that word sound familiar to you? Ecclesia um, is translated church in the New Testament. It means congregation or assembly. A called out assembly. Well, the word Ecclesiastes has to do with a teacher of an assembly. 
And uh, the Hebrew word really means the same thing, and we'll get into that here in just a moment. Though the book is relatively short, uh, there are some difficulties, quite a few of them. But it's very important, again, to keep these things in context. In mind, we must always keep in our minds the theme of the book, the purpose of the book, and what point is being considered within its context. I think that will become very clear to us as we go through this study. As we analyze particular statements, we must keep them in their context. Now, the main focus of the book is to point out the true value of material things. Which is what? (laughs) Vanity. There is absolutely nothing that is material in nature. Nothing that is going to last forever. Whether it be a position of power and authority in this world, some possession that you have acquired, all the money in your bank account, it's all going to eventually turn into what? Nothing. It's all going to pass away. And this is the focus, the main focus of the book, that the things under the sun are temporary. Nothing lasts under the sun forever. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The main point of the book, then, in view of this problem, that everything is vanity under the sun, is that while we are here, we must serve God. That is going to be the point that he's going to get to in chapter 11. Now, it takes him a while to get there. But in chapter 11, he begins to make that point and emphasize that point When we die, the the flesh returns back to the dust of the earth from which it came. The Spirit returns to God who gave it. Therefore, our obligation is going to be to the one in whom our soul resides, to God. We we, We must serve Him throughout life. And that's really the only thing that's going to make life in this planet, or in this life, on this planet, in this world, make it worth anything at all. Because when you take God out of the equation, what is anything worth anymore? The true value of material things, vanity of vanities. This this term vanity occurs 35 times in 29 different verses. It means futility, uselessness, nothingness, vanity. A waste of time. The key phrase is under the sun. This is very important. When Solomon is talking about things being worthless, he's certainly not talking about God. He's not talking about your soul. He's not talking about anything that's spiritual in nature. When he talks about those things that are worthless, he's talking about things that are under the sun. In the overall scheme of things, they are worthless. This phrase occurs 29 times in 27 verses. From an earthly point of view, how much is this thing worth? Well, some may say, well, this, stick, this chunk of gold is worth a lot of money. <laughs> but in the overall view, it's actually not. It's worthless in the overall scheme of things. The book illustrates the vanity of life when looked at solely from an earthly perspective. Let me say, go back to that gold. Listen, you may have a whole room full of gold. In your house. The day is going to come. Even if that gold exists past you. And it will. It's going to go to somebody else. What are they going to do with it? Because it ain't going to be yours anymore. 
Then what's going to be of it? It's going to be falling to somebody who's going to waste it, throw it away, lose it, whatever. I mean, it's really not going to be worth, and after you leave this world, it's not going to be worth one plug nickel to you. Not one penny. So, the book illustrates the vanity of life. When a person looks at it, looks at life from solely an earthly perspective. The words of the preacher, the term preacher there in verse 1 is from the Hebrew term koleth, the teacher, the leader of an assembly. That's why the Septuagint translates it ecclesiastes, the preacher, the leader of an assembly. The author, I'm convinced, is King Solomon, the son of David. Of course, that's what, well, verse 1 doesn't say, I'm Solomon, but it does say, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And he is a king. Um, His reign is mentioned there in verse 12. This person who wrote this book is the king, not just David being the king. His wisdom is also something that is emphasized, and we know that Solomon was given all of his wisdom, 1 Kings 3.12. And all of his building activities and all of his wealth is also mentioned in this book. But Solomon never refers to himself by name. And so there are many commentators who, especially modern commentators. Now you go back uh, before 1600s and you're going to find a universal belief that Solomon wrote this book. In fact, you go to the Hebrew history and you're going to find out from a Jewish perspective that they believe that Solomon wrote this book. There was one fellow who was a Jew who questioned Solomon's authorship, but most all accepted as being Solomon. Uh, but modern scholars, there are some who question it because of the, uh, the style of the book, and they say regarding some of the language that's used in the book that it would be post-exilic, that after uh, Israel was... Uh, Delivered, or they came out of their bondage to Babylon, that uh, it appears to have been written after that date. I know there are answers to all of the objections to Solomon, to my satisfaction. Uh, I believe Solomon wrote this book without question. But listen, here's the point and the focus. This author, this wise man who wrote this book, What he's doing is he's putting life in a test tube. And he's looking at it from a lot of different perspectives. He's putting a lot of other things in it, and he's trying it out from different perspectives. And he's doing this to explain the real value and purpose of life. You know, Thomas Edison once said, and he was getting on up in years, when he finally invented the light bulb. And he was asked what it felt like to be a failure. And of course, it, it wasn't that he, and this was his response, it's not that I'm a failure, that I just found 1,000 ways not to make a light bulb. But now he's found the one way to make that light bulb. And so really what Solomon is doing is he's looking at all these different ways not to make a life. <laughs> he, he's looking at all these different perspectives in which you could waste your life. And he's talking about these things. So life is put under, 
microscope, if you will, and it's examined from a lot of different perspectives. There are two opposite views in this book. You have the view from under the sun. Then you have the view of in reference to God. Those are two different views and two different perspectives. If you were to look at life from a materialistic, worldly perspective, what would you see? The natural man sees things in this world, and you know, you, you, you chase the rainbow. You're going after that pot of gold. You're always trying to get more and do better and gain a grip on the future for your children, but then you die. And it's all for nothing. Well, that's going to actually lead to rather a pessimistic and skeptical view of life, isn't it? Man, I've done all this and what does it get me? Nothing. All is vanity. That's Solomon's point. But then, of course, at the other, from the other perspective, the other view is... From God's perspective, when one, write, when one reads this and understands it from God's perspective, and Solomon sometimes writes you know, and lets it be known that he's writing from this perspective as one who has been revealed, or God has revealed himself to him. The observations and conclusions, as we see, are going to give us hope and confidence because we realize there is a purpose for life after all. There is truly a reason for living. And we have hope. We can have confidence. And so, again, you know, the, from two different perspectives, look, just to demonstrate, illustrate this, ask these questions from a materialist perspective. From an atheist perspective, who am I? Where did I come from? I was just an accident. A molecular miracle, but I can't say miracle because that would, you know, that would include some divine being. So just a molecular accident that is impossible to happen naturally. But that's what I believe I, where I believe I came from. Why am I here? I don't know. Living to die. That's it. What am I? What am I to be doing? I mean, if you're looking at life from a purely materialistic perspective, what are your answers to these questions? Where am I going? When I die, what do I have then? What is life? But then you look at these very same questions from a God-enlightened viewpoint, and everything changes, don't they? Everything changes. Who am I? Well... I am a, a human being that God has placed in this world, that God has empowered, that God has gifted, that God has provided for, and, and I have duties and responsibilities to Him, but I'm also a person who can look to God and have hope. I can understand my purpose for life. I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm supposed to be doing today. And it makes life worth living. Well, from an atheistic perspective, from a materialistic perspective, what is life about? How dreary. <laughs> How pessimistic. How vain a life is that? 
Vanity of vanities, he says. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, again, this is a superlative. It, it's emphasized. Look at verse 2 again. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Four times he emphasizes this. Doesn't that tell you that that's the main point? That the, He's really emphasizing something here. The emptiest of empties. You can't get any emptier than this. You can't get any more worthless than this. That's what life is without God. That's what your existence on this planet would be if there was no God. Worthless. All is vanity. And in this book, he points out several different things that are vain, that are vanity under the sun. You know, all of our toil, all of our effort, all of our energy is worth nothing without God. All of our wisdom that we can, you know, we can do some amazing things today with technology. All of the wonderful things that we can accomplish, the things that we can do today. Isn't it amazing? In the medical field, isn't it amazing what we can cure, what we can fix? Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing from a technology standard standpoint how we can communicate with each other? That I can pick up my little cell phone here, and it's amazing what I can do with this little thing. It's amazing. All of the wisdom can be employed in all of these areas. But you know what? This little iPhone here is one day it's going to be worthless. It's already got a cracked screen on it where I dropped it. One of these days, it's going to be worth absolutely nothing. Going to have to get a bigger one, a better one, a faster one. <laughs> or it may just go back to those flip phones. All the wisdom, though, that we can employ in this world, without God, what does it amount to? And doing good. Now, righteousness, many times in this book, does not necessarily mean righteousness in the, in the eyes of God per se. It means doing what is right. And fair, it's equity, it's justice. And so when you think about all the justice that man may do, you know, here's, a, here's an important thing to remember. If there was no God, why be just? Why could be concerned about what's fair and what's right? Well, by the way, what is fair and what's right? What is good or what's bad? And we may argue over what's fair or what's right and what's you know, good for somebody else. But without God, it's vanity. It's worthless. It doesn't have any meaning behind it. There's no substance to it. All of the wealth that we may acquire. The wise men talks about our wealth. What's going to happen to that wealth? You may build up this great inheritance for your grandkids or your kids. And you give it to them, and what are they going to do with it? The prestige that may come with our position. The prestige that may come with us uh, in our being honored by men. What does, that, what does that accomplish in the end? Or the pleasure that we may engage in. The things that we consider to be enjoyable. You know, I can look back on my life, and there are a lot of things that I can say, hey, that was enjoyable, and I really enjoyed that. I think back to the vacation that family took 
to Myrtle Beach. That was fun. That was a blast. We, I enjoyed that so much, just being with the grandkids. Yes, it wore me out. I was so tired. Denise was worn out. And, you know, but you know what? That only lasted a week. And then it was over. And it's back to work. Um, all the pleasure that you get. I'm talking about even things that are right in and of themselves, you know. It's all gone. It's just fleeting. But even more so, how about the pleasure that is not good for you that will actually destroy you? The youth and the vigor that many people, those you young people, you feel good today. Anthony can go, he can go down and he can play basketball all day long. 20 years, you're not going to be able to do that, man. <laughs> you're just not. It's going to be different. What happens to youth and vigor? We all know the answer to that question. What about the days of our life? You know, it appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. It's like a vapor. See, the, and here's the thing, and, and this is what the wise man's pointing to. You know, we look at these things and we understand it. You know, the toil, the work, the effort that we put into things. Some, have you ever felt like you're one of those hamsters on a hamster wheel? And you're just going round and round and round and you're not getting anywhere? That's really kind of what life is like without God. All is vanity. Our prophet, look at verse 3. It says, what profit is a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? What do you really accomplish? The word profit means that which remains. After all the work is done, what remains? What's left? What remains of all men's labor? You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 through 19, is talking about the resurrection in the context. And he talks about, first of all, you know, the you know, point that our faith is futile if Christ has not been raised from the dead. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, what is the point of believing in Christ? What is the point in serving God? And of course, here Paul is suffering as an apostle, being persecuted everywhere it goes. I mean, he, of all men, he is one of the most pitiable. And of course, that would apply to all faithful Christians who suffer persecution for Christ. But this is true for every man. I mean, if, if there is no such thing as the resurrection, what's the point of living at all? What's the point of life? What's the point of doing anything? Because in the end, everything is going to come to nothing. Right? And under the sun, I mean, what is your profit from all that you do under the sun? Again, this is the key. He's talking about the things that you accomplish in this life that are material in nature. Every thought, all of your efforts, all the material rewards that you accumulate, ultimately, in the final analysis, will be worth what? That fella who had an abundant crop and said, you know, wow, I'm going to have to tear down my barns and build bigger barns to store all my goods so I can eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to sit back and relax for the rest of my days. And God called him a what? A fool. Fool. Tonight your soul will be required of thee. Then whose will these things be? And that's the point. What profit has a man from all his labor in 
which he toils under the sun. No, you can kind of put that parable into a modern day scenario. You've got a young businessman who has, you know, invested and he's making all this money. I mean, he's got it really rolling in. And he looks at all this income that's flowing in and he says, you know, I can quit now. I can retire. And he does that. And then he has a heart attack right there on the spot. What happens to all that stuff? It's gone. He has it no more. You can't take it with you. What a shame. Verse 4, one generation passes away and another generation comes. But the earth abides forever. There's a constant change. You see? Constant change. The sun also rises and the sun goes down. And hastens to the place where it arose. Every day. You know what? Days, not only does it hasten to the place where it arose, it just gets faster and faster, doesn't it? Every time you turn around, it seems like every day is just a little faster. The years fly by. This past year is the fastest year on record. For me, it, it, looking back, it's the fastest ever. Now, just as many seconds ticked away as in any other year. Just as many hours, just as many days, it's exactly the same. It just seems like it went a lot faster. And that's the way life is. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. There's just a constant activity going on in this world. And we're amazed at it sometimes when we stand around and we look at nature and the things that take place. And what we come to realize is we're just pilgrims. We're just here for a little while. One generation comes, another one goes. And, you know, we think my genera the generation beyond me, ahead of me, looks at my generation thinking, look at all those dummies. They're a bunch of numbskulls. You know, they, they don't have a lot of... They don't have a lot of sense, at least that's what I'm sure that many thought. And then I look at the generation behind me, and I think the same thing about them. And that generation looks at the generation coming up behind them. You've got the millennials now. What do you think about them? But you know what? It just keeps going and going and going. Now, it is true that things are cyclical, and some, many times things go downhill. Nations go downhill. Once they go to the top and they're serving God or they're righteous to a, at least to a degree, you know what? What happened, what happened with Israel? They fell. They turned away from God. In fact, you go to Joshua chapters 1 and 2 and you find out that during the days of Joshua, that generation was faithful to the Lord, but then the next generation rose up that did not know God. That's what happens. So we all need to remember we're all just pilgrims here. We're only here for a very, very short time. The ancients knew that, Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. Those great men of faith understood this principle. We're only here for a little while. We're only pilgrims. We're going somewhere that God has prepared for us. We understand we're just pilgrims. Yet the earth abides forever. He does, he does say that. The earth abides forever. The Hebrew term olam uh, means as long as, allowed, or as long as God intends, as long as God plans. 
It doesn't mean eternity. This term is used in a variety, including the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament. So it simply means age lasting, however long that is. It is a comparative regarding how fast generations come and go and how fast everything changes in this world. But the reality is the world is a, you know, God's creation is firm. It's, it's not going away. In fact, Jesus uses this same type of comparison in Matthew chapter 5 regarding the law. He says the earth shall, you know, and the sun shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. Or the idea is that he's making a comparison. The law was steadfast and it was certain and it was not going to go away until it was fulfilled. That was a certainty. The heavens and the earth will not pass away until these things happen. That's absolutely certain. Of course, what was to happen is that these things be fulfilled, which Jesus did. Now, that's an important point to remember. But it's a comparative. The stability of God's creation compared with the frailty of human life. The sun rises and sets. The wind whirls about continually. The sea is not full. All these things simply point to the vanity of continual labor. And we can scratch our head about these things and try to figure out the science behind it all, but the reality is there are things that we will not understand. And by comparing human life under the sun with these things, we can easily see the frailty of our existence. We can see that we are subject to so many things beyond our control. We need to understand that. And all the things that this world may provide, everything that we may accomplish, all the work and the labor that we may engage in, as Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 26, or 26, what shall a man profit if he should gain the whole world and lose his soul? Keeping things in perspective. Keeping things in perspective. Verse 8, all things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Everything takes effort. Everything does. But it seems that we get nowhere. Like that hamster on that hamster wheel. It's kind of, and you know, I, I understand the need, and I... I wish we, Denise and I used to have one of these treadmills. You know, and that's good for you. I understand that. But I just can't enjoy, or at least I find it difficult to enjoy, walking in place for 30 minutes. That just doesn't seem to, to be very beneficial. I know it is, but I, it sure is boring, isn't it? If I'm walking, I want to be walking somewhere. Looking at the scenery. That's why they now have those things. You know, they've got these screens, and it's like you're walking somewhere else. You can choose your destination, and you can walk. And they've got the video there like you're walking on that trail or whatever. But uh, everything takes effort. But as you, as you engage in all this effort, where do you really go? You know, uh, we want to understand the why of things sometimes, but we're limited in knowledge. We were talking this morning about the difference between Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And of course we pointed out that there are some things that we'll never fully understand. And really the bottom line is eventually we're just going to have to come to that place where we understand that God is in control and trust Him. And that's what real understanding is going to be about, you know. 
Naaman didn't have to understand why he had to dip in the Jordan seven times. He just had to trust God. And understand, and that's real understanding. But there are many things in this world we're not, we're not going to understand. Seek to understand all these things. We can seek, we can search, we can study, we can dig, we can invent. But we're still going to be looking. You know, with all the technological advances, the medical advances that we've made, which is astounding in and of itself, have you ever noticed that when we come up with a solution for this, it seems to pop up something else? Some other disease, some other virus, some other problem. And we seek to understand this, and we may even come up with a solution to solve this problem, and then we cause five more. It's another problem. Sometimes our solutions are problem makers. And as he says, man cannot express it. You know, we can't. We can try. Um, and we look at the things that exist and we, we're always chasing after this and chasing after that. And we're never satisfied with what we finally get, you know. Satisfaction cannot be found in things under the sun. The greedy, the covetous, they will never be satisfied with the money that they have. They're always going to want more. Always. An alcoholic or a drug addict, you know what, he's never going to get... You know, he's never going to get that last drink to where he says, Ah, oh, I don't need to drink anymore. I don't want to drink anymore. Not if he's an alcoholic. He's never going to get enough. He'll drink till he passes out. Same thing with the drug addict. The fornicator or the adulterer. You know, there, there is no true satisfaction found in these things. There may be a temporary false pseudo pleasure but look at all the problems that arrive because of these things the lust of the flesh lust of the eyes and pride of life will never satisfy us never in fact the pursuit of, these, of all these things will leave us nothing but empty empty inside and destroyed He says, that which has been will be is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. History does repeat itself. All those who have studied history realize that. History repeats itself. It is cyclical. It just keeps going around and around and around. Why is that? Well, first of all, we as human beings, we're all constitutionally the same. You know, you go back to Adam and Eve. Constitutionally, we are just like them. Free moral agents with choices to be made. Now, it is true that we have many more choices available to us today. We have, but it's really the same basic problem. We're all tempted through the same means, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We're, we're all tempted the same way that Adam and Eve was. And we all have the, basic, the same basic problem. We want that which is not right. Or we can want that which is not right. 
And so we are, you know, we are constitutionally the same. And as humanity, you know, just goes, it's going to, yeah, it's going to continue repeating itself over and over again. Adam and Eve has been repeated how many times in history? Over and over and over and over. Everybody. What man tends to have is a short memory. Our incomplete and selective memory is what makes it possible to continue to repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again. We just don't learn as human beings. We don't learn. There are some things that do not work. But, you know, the next generation is going to force them down in your throat anyway. They're going to try them. They're going to do this. They're going to do it, whether you like it or not. You say, well, that's been proven not to work. You know, the next generation, you get further and further away from a certain political system. You go back, you know, many years ago, we had dictators in the world. And finally someone came up with the idea, you know, that's just not good. But then we turn right around and we submit to dictators. It just keeps going around and around. We see that. All that is invented is made possible by what God has equipped us with from a knowledge perspective from the very beginning. And yes, it takes time. You know, one of the interesting things that often crosses my, my mind, it just kind of goes through there every once in a while, I wonder how sophisticated and how knowledgeable men were before the flood. You know, building the Tower of Babel, that, that was a feat. In fact, you think about this. The pyramids in Egypt. How'd they do that? Some of the other wonders of the world, of the ancient world, how did they do those things? They were technologically advanced in order to do those things. Now, they may not have had iPhones and computers. Well, actually, they did have sort of computers. They just weren't electrically charged. Men have, you know, it's, it's amazing. You go back and you look at history, some of the inventions that people have made. It's amazing. And those things are forgotten, you know. Um, but there are amazing things in history. And we think that we're the, you know, smartest ones. I really do. I really do question that. I, I'm kind of a believer that, you know, you go back in the 17 and 1800s, and yes, they had their problems, no question about that. But men, general, think about it. They didn't have all the technology that we do, but you read their writings. You listen to what they said. I mean, these are smart, intelligent, well-learned people. How'd that happen? All that is done is to satisfy or to provide for the basic needs of every man, of every time, of all time. I mean, every technological advance that comes along is to help provide or to make things easier regarding food, our shelter, our clothing, our communication. It's all focused still on the same things. Notice that. Is there anything of which it may be said? See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. That is true. Say, so, well, what about the jet airplane? <laughs> well, 
Okay, that may be true, but, but hey, travel, that's always been there. I mean, how did, how did people travel across the Atlantic Ocean back in the 1400s on a boat? Now, you, you yeah, the Titanic was a really nice boat, right? Pilgrims came across on the Mayflower. We tend to forget and that's the primary reason why we keep making the mistakes over and over and over. Israel is an example. We need to learn from Israel. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All peoples. You go back and look and just study history. History, it kind of amazes me, but in schools, and this was true when I was in school, and it's still true today. They'll put coaches, no offense to coaches, but they'll put coaches of the football team or the baseball team in the, in the, in the history classes. And, uh, you know, it's like they don't put as much stock in history as they do math and science and English. History is just kind of a, you know, thing they put on the back burner. It's not that important. There's a mistake, or one of them, right there. A personal test, okay? Who is your great-great-granddaddy? Some of you may know. Who's your great-great-great-granddaddy? I don't have a clue. Um, but it's true that, you know, when people come and they go, they will eventually be forgotten. Eventually. Most in this audience right now, when I ask who was Elvis Presley, most of you know. You know what? It won't be very long and people will be saying, Elvis who? Things are easily forgotten. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who come after. You kind of see it since where Solomon's going with all this. You know, life under the sun, all the material things, the blessings and achievements that we may have, the overall picture is worth nothing. And the main point is going to point us towards God. Because, look, if, if we truly understand the vanity of things, we're going to start looking for some, something else. And God is the answer to that. When you become dissatisfied with something, that's when you'll start looking for something else. You know, that's why I say you can't get somebody saved until you first get them lost. They've got to become dissatisfied where they are. You can't get someone out of denominationalism until you first get them questioning, questioning that denomination and their beliefs and start examining themselves. Okay, so you first have to get them lost. Well, that's really what Solomon's doing. He's pointing out the futility of this world. There is nothing in this world... That's going to last forever. Nothing. Nothing that's material. So why do we hold on to these things? Why do we emphasize these things? Why do we exalt these things and make them so important in our lives? Why do we do that? One's quality of life is only realized when we recognize the futility of chasing the wind and realize our need for God. And we seek after him and we follow him. That's the only time and the only way that life can be meaningful. 
My friend, what about you? What, what is your priority in life? Will you obey God, submit to Him, and obey His Son, Jesus Christ? Jesus is the one who died for you. Jesus is the one who was raised to give you hope. If you've been baptized into Him, you have hope. If you follow Him, you have hope. But if not, your life is vain. Understand that. If we can help you in any way, won't you come while together we stand while we stand?